Okay, good morning. Um, I remember I was at work one day. Uh, we were in the tea room one morning, all having a, dis a discussion. I, I can't remember how the discussion had started. It wasn't something I'd started. But it was whether or not, uh, to do with whether or not Jesus had actually said something. So I said, hang on, I'll, I'll, I'll read it out to you. And in the time it took me to reach into my bag, grab out my Bible and open it, the room had emptied. That they cleared out rather than simply have, um, have to hear me read something to them from the Bible. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do just uh, thank you that we can gather here, although um, this, this setting is not perfect, but we can still get together and um, uh, be, your, be your church. And so, Lord, you know, as, as, as I speak today, I just pray that my words are true and helpful. Uh, amen. So before we start, it would be really good if you could have an open Bible in front of you. Um, just help you follow along. I'll, I'll be reading out a lot of things, but not everything. So, as a couple of weeks ago, Steve opened us up in Acts, and in chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus tells the apostles not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, to be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Acts 1 verse 8, they are told they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> And so chapter 2 opens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So all together in one place. One, chapter 1 verse 2 talks about the disciples going to the upper room where they were staying. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, it notes that the, brothers, the company of brothers was 120 people. So this may be the same group of people gathered in the same room, but all we are really told is that they were all in one place, waiting as told for the promise. But this isn't exactly how the chapter opens. Most texts say when the day of Pentecost arrived. Um, that just seemed like a strange wording and I wondered what they meant. Those of you who have a King James or New King James will see a, a different wording. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. The, wording, um, the word in, in the ESV arrived in the Greek. Uh, this means to be fulfilled or, or to be complete. So the text is saying, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled or was completed. There were three main festivals celebrated by the Jews at this time. Uh, Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. The Feast of Pentecost, if you remember, came 50 days after the Passover. It originally celebrated the end of the barley harvest, when the first fruits of the harvest had, that, had been gathered, um, that had been gathered were kept and were given as an offering to the Lord. But over time, this also came to commemorate Moses being given the law on Mount Sinai. <clears throat> Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest on the Day of First Fruits. So think about it. Here is the beginning of the New Covenant. And at the end of our text today, spoilers ahead, there are about 3,000 souls added to their number. John Stott points out that there was a great harvest that day, 3,000 people. That these are the first fruits of the Christian mission. So to say that the day of Pentecost had fully come or was completed, this could well be referring um, what it was referring to. And so while they were gathered in verses two to three, uh, sorry two to four, three things happened: a sound like a rushing wind, tongues as of fire resting on them, 
and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the wind, notice that it's a sound like a rushing wind. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit, wind and breath is the same word. And remember in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. So the rushing wind and the dead bones are brought back to life. So in the Old Testament, the word can be wind or it can be the breath or, or, or spirit um, of God in this case. In this passage here, this particular word is only used twice in the New Testament and both times are in Acts. And it can mean wind or even a breath. But the point here is that this rushing wind clearly indicates the Holy Spirit has entered, has entered the scene. And then tongues of fire, or tongues as of fire, resting on each of them. Not actual tongues of fire, but tongues as of fire. This was probably the best description they could give as to what they saw. I found uh, this a bit harder to pin down, um, I guess as a symbol. But think of Moses and the burning bush. Uh, in Ezekiel, fire tends to be about holiness and purity, with a fire consuming everything that's impure. And in Luke 3.16, John the Baptist tells his audience that the Christ is coming who will baptise them with the fire, with, with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now fire here is about judgment. Sinclair Ferguson in talking about this judgment, what John the Baptist didn't know was that the baptism of fire would be upon the Messiah himself on the cross. But Luke in Acts makes no mention of fire as such, its flames having been exhausted in Christ. And then Charles Spurgeon, he talks about how fire illumines or lights up. So it illumines the gospel in the hearts of men, inflaming the disciples to be witnesses. And then they begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 6 makes it clear that the tongues were the numerous languages of the people who were in Jerusalem. So the Spirit comes upon them and empowers them to do things they were unable to do before. When our now 30-year-old daughter was still in primary school, a group of her friends were going to a particular church's youth group. I was happy for her to go until she came home with a worksheet that said unless she spoke in tongues, she wasn't a true Christian. I know this is not unique. I've come across this, this sort of thing in other places. But there is this idea out there that true Christians, spirit-filled Christians, they demonstrate this by their speaking in tongues. Now, for the purposes of today's text, we won't go too much into this topic, um, but this is not to shy away from it, but that because this comes up again in Acts, there'll be further opportunities to explore this further. But today, I will just say that to speak in tongues as being a normative and expected Christian experience is just bad teaching and a misunderstanding of what the Bible tells us. Just because something is described in the Bible, it doesn't make it a normal experience for us all. Just think of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead after lying. If lying to the Holy Spirit, if lying to God meant we would drop dead, I expect a lot of us would be in serious trouble. And also notice that this is the only time in Scripture that tongues are actually described or defined in its known human languages. And, and in Acts, if we look at all the places where we see tongues mentioned, in, in chapter 2, they're in Jerusalem. In uh, chapter 8, they're going to the Samaritans. And in chapter 10, it's to the Gentiles. Now, chapter 9, it's the followers of John, but uh, arguably they missed what happened at Pentecost, so this is sort of a repeat of Acts chapter 2. So when tongues occurs, um, it's when they go to Jerusalem, 
to Samaria and to the Gentiles or, or to the ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? This is the gospel spreading as per what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. So verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Jerusalem normally had a population of about 55,000 people. But during these festivals, it was swelled to two or 300,000 and likely more. So if Mafra, Mafra Township itself has a population of a bit over 4,000, imagine a big event is on and suddenly an extra 20,000 or so people packing into town. Imagine trying to get the cafe attitude with all that going on. So Jerusalem is a busy place with people from all over the known world, as we can see from the list in verses 9 and following. But this is not just some random list of nations, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. F.F. F. Bruce points out that these people were from the lands of the earliest dispersion, where the ten northern tribes had been deported by the Assyrians. Bruce adds a lot more detail to this list of nations, but time is against me, with, against me going into this detail. But the farthest reaches of the Jewish people are here, brought together in Jerusalem. What is happening here is the dispersion is being reversed. Prophets repeatedly restated the promise of God that the dispersed of Israel would be regathered. Another idea, although some say it's a weak idea from this text, is that this is also Babel being reversed. During the days of Babel, humanity was divided by languages, and here those barriers are being overcome. But, as I said, some see that as a weak link from the text, but I just thought it was interesting. So they are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. In verses 7 to 8, hearing what's going on, a crowd gathers, and these people from all over the known world gather and are astounded because they could hear what was being said in their own language. So this is not some great cacophony, but it's just as some order. People in this large crowd were able to hear and understand. The hearers realise that these are simple Galileans speaking their own language, but how do they know? During Jesus' trial in the courtyard, the servant girl identifies Peter as one of them. So perhaps there's something about their accents or their clothing or something else where, where the people can easily identify them as Galileans. But to hear these Galileans speaking in their own languages, in the language of the hearers, um, the crowd are amazed. Clearly something very unusual and quite unique is happening here. And notice the two responses to this in verse 12. Some are questioning, what does this mean? But others mock, saying they are drunk. They were called babblers. So here too, at the inauguration of the new covenant, and in the face of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and his miraculous gift, there are still mockers. So it's a good reality check for us that we shouldn't be surprised when we're mocked. The next section of chapter 2, verses uh, 14 to 21, Peter explains what's happening and why. Verse 14 starts with Peter standing with the other 11 apostles, raising his voice and addressing the crowd. Notice the turnaround. Only a few weeks ago, Peter denied even knowing Jesus, and here he is, empowered by this Holy Spirit, boldly addressing the crowd. Peter starts by rebutting the accusations of drunkenness, saying it's only 9am. Apparently, it was Jewish, tra Jewish tradition to have breakfast at about 10. So Peter's telling them, you know, drunk, don't be ridiculous. We haven't even had breakfast yet. He then goes on to explain what's happening by quoting Joel, telling them that this is what Joel was pointing to. Peter points out 
that what the crowds are witnessing is a demonstration that the last days have indeed come, that the Holy Spirit being poured out is clear proof that the Messiah had come, that Jesus is the fulfilment of all the promises and shadows of the Old Testament. Notice here too, what does being filled with the Holy Spirit do to Peter? He preaches and his focus is on Christ. So Peter quotes Joel. So verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The actual passage in Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward. But Peter changes it to what we see before us, and in the last days. What we saw as a future event, Peter, under the Holy Spirit, sees as now. Peter points out that we are now in the last days. That Joel, Joel is pointing to the times of the New Covenant and the promises of the Old Testament being fulfilled. And this is how, <coughs> excuse me, and this is how we know that we are indeed in these times. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and indeed His Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Now the all here isn't a universal all humanity, but an all encompassing the church, Christ's bride. Now for the rest. Um, Thinking of prophecy. So, so in passages like this, Brian Borgman points out that we often spend so much time hung up on the particulars that we miss the point of what's actually being said and what's happening. So here we get hung up on prophecy, virtues, visions and dreams and miss what Peter is actually pointing to. So in Numbers 12, um, Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses. And if you remember, God's judgment falls upon them with Miriam being turned leprous. But in verse 6, God says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. The point is that prophecy and visions and dreams are all part of the same thing. And in Acts 2 verse 18, it ends with the summary, and they shall all prophesy. So these are all the same and not different things. Uh, look at the text again. It's, it talks about sons and daughters prophesying and young men who will see visions. So young men are also sons, so to separate them doesn't quite work either. But look at what is happening. Sons and daughters, young men and old, male and female servants. The point is here is that there are no distinctions between genders and age groups or even class that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people. Now this is a major change. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was meted out, if you will, to specific people at specific times, to God's chosen prophets or to people like Moses or King David. These people uh, were then God's spokesmen for the people. So as an example, in Numbers chapter 11, 16 and 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So in Old Testament times, the Spirit is put on specific people. But here in Acts, it falls on each person present. The tongues as a fire fall on each of them. And then, and then here, the promise is it will be for every person. 
<clears throat> this is a new covenant. The Spirit will come and be in each and every one of God's people. So what do we mean when we talk of prophecy? So prophecy is speaking the words of Scripture, interpreting scriptural truth. So this, this can be everything from preaching or just simply sharing the gospel with your neighbour. The problem here is that uh, this is something else that can be abused and people will talk in, in vague uh, spiritual terms rather than in biblical terms. So, for example, someone might say um, to a childless couple that, you know, I have a word from God that you'll have a baby next year. You know, they may or may not, but if they don't, um, this can cause them a lot, the couple a lot of pain. So this is manipulative and it's damaging. Um, uh, so, so Christianity is based on God speaking. So nowhere are we more vulnerable to attack than by people who claim to be speaking for God. This can be where falsehood has its greatest power. And God's people can also be tricked and hurt by such words. So never forget that we now have the full, complete word of God. There is nothing new to add. We need to test the spirits. We need to be discerning. Also, in Old Testament terms, if a person claims to be a prophet and they're wrong, they were stoned. So while we're obviously not going to be stoning anyone now, if someone claiming to be a prophet is wrong, well, then does it make them a liar? And, uh, well, we all know who the father of lies is. So Acts 2, verses 19 to 21. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire, vapour and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There are several ways of viewing these verses, and again, time doesn't permit a full discussion, so I'll try to keep it short. One argument is that this occurred when Jesus was on the cross. So at the sixth hour, when there was darkness over the whole land and the sun's light failed. Another argument is that Peter included this whole prophecy from Joel, even though the latter part is yet to be fulfilled. So verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes. This is, this is the final judgment, Christ's second coming, so these verses point to that. Or it could be that these are just simply um, heavily linked. So the promises to Joel fall into the category of already but not yet. So in one sense, the prophecy has been fulfilled, but in another, not yet fully. And then verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John Calvin said, God admits all, to, all men to himself without exception, since no man is, is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is open to all. So Peter, having pointed all these things out, he now moves directly to Christ. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This is one of those interesting uh, tidbits. Um, as you yourselves know, Peter appeals to their prior knowledge of what Jesus did during his time on earth. These events were, as F.F. Bruce says, fresh in their minds. The mighty works and wonders of signs that God did through him. So Peter is appealing to those who had knowledge of what Jesus did. And in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, cruci uh, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we see the divine sovereignty and human culpability, human moral culpability at play. Who killed Jesus? His father. It was his predetermined plan. 
But in the same breath, lawless or godless men killed Peter. Peter sees no contradiction to say that God did it, but also that people did it. This is God's sovereignty in action, but it doesn't excuse them or us from sinning. Now, foreknowledge here doesn't mean that God foresaw what people would do um, and responded to their future actions, but this is foreordination. So it's not God looking down time and saw that people would crucify his son, but that this reaffirmed that this was, his, that was, this, this was his designated and appointed plan and that he would use godless people to accomplish that plan. But then in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, to quote Bertram, the abyss could no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold a child in her body. So the pangs or agony of death, the word pangs here is usually associated with labour pains. So Jesus being raised up was an unstoppable and inevitable event. Peter now moves to quote Psalm 16, which F.F. Bruce says um, uh, Peter is now using the Old Testament testimony to confirm his claims about Jesus. So verse 25. For, Peter, oh, sorry, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness and full of gladness in, with your presence. So Psalm 16 is a psalm of David and Peter includes this lengthier section of this quote to show um, that David as a prophet was talking about Jesus in the whole psalm and not himself. Having quoted the psalm, Peter goes on to explain what it means to his hearers. Peter makes the case that this is none other than Jesus. So verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says this psalm can't be about David because as we all know, David died and was buried and his tomb is actually a well-known landmark. <clears throat> verse 30, And that David being a prophet foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ and that he is the one who was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. In verse 32, Peter states his claim that this is indeed Jesus. It is he who raised God up who God raised up, and that Peter and his cohorts are, all, cohorts are all witnesses to that event. So being resurrected, where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of God. The right hand of God in scripture, as in verse 33, is an expression about God's um, acting in power. And so his son is now glorified, he's now exalted. And at the end of verse 33, Peter brings all this back to the outpouring of the, outpouring of the Spirit, which they are all witnessing. <coughs> Sinclair Ferguson. <coughs> the hidden reality revealed publicly by Pentecost is that the ascended Christ had now asked the Father to fulfil his promise, had received the Spirit for his people, and had now poured him out on the church. So the messianic age, begun in the resurrection of Christ, might catch up in its flow those who are united to him by participation in the one spirit. Thus, in Abraham's seed, would all the nations of earth now be blessed. Verse 34. 
For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Peter quotes Psalm 110 to drive his point that this is not David, but the Messiah being talked about. That he is superior to David, with David calling him Lord. David didn't ascend to heaven to sit at God's right hand, but this is addressed to David's Lord. And then in verse 36, Peter nails it home. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter confirms that this is Jesus. And interestingly, he makes the point that this is not lawless men, but you who crucified him. The effect of Peter's sermon was immediate. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are cut to the heart. They are convicted of their sin. F.F. Bruce again. If Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their appointed Messiah, then, then no guilt could be greater than the guilt of treating him as he had been treated. If they refused him in whom all their hope of salvation rested, what hope of salvation was left to them now? So they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter's reply is full of reassurance. They need to repent and be baptised. To repent is an about face. It's to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. And in doing so, they'll be forgiven and will receive the Holy Spirit themselves. <clears throat> and then from verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is not just for them, but for their children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So while everyone who the Lord... So every, so while everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, ultimately it's God who calls them. This is again God's sovereignty versus our human culpability. On the one level, we are told to save ourselves, but it is God alone who saves through Christ. And then we end this section with the news that about 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. 3,000. That's three quarters of the population of Mafra from one sermon in one day, um, right at the beginning of the fledgling church. <clears throat> so what are we to do with all this? Well, one, we need to repent and be baptised for forgiveness of sins. Will we mock or will, will we be cut to the heart? Do we realise our sin and our need for Christ? Will we turn to the greater son of David and the one whom death could not hold down? Will we turn from our rebellion against God and turn to seek him? Turn to, turn to him seeking forgiveness? And two, having done this, we will receive the promised Holy Spirit and then be empowered to go out and do the Lord's work. So the point of the Holy Spirit is we are empowered and emboldened to go out and preach the gospel and to spiritual truths to people. Thinking of my opening illustration of when I pulled out my Bible at work, it can seem, like, it can seem hard and fruitless at times. But let me conclude with another story. About 30 years ago I did a truck run and uh, one of my stops at Horsham. Um, my favourite place for lunch was, of all places, a health food shop. 
he just made great food and he was a great bloke to have chats to. Um, this, was, this was in the days when dolphins were a bit of a thing in the New Age movement. And uh, this, this bloke would talk to me about the time when he used to believe he would come back reincarnated as a dolphin. He used to. And then he would preach the gospel to me. At that stage in my life, I remember rolling my eyes and thinking, okay, here we go again. But now I look forward to meeting him again in heaven and thanking him for his faithfulness. Going on my reception of his, of his words to me, he may well have assumed that his preaching to me was fruitless. And yet, you know, here I am. So sometimes we have no, no idea what effect we will have on people's lives. And for some of us, it can feel like we talk about the gospel to lots of people with no discernible results. My conversion experience wasn't a Damascus Road moment, but a gradual process. I couldn't tell you what date I was saved. Um, but as, as I've said before, um, Robin dragged me kicking and screaming along to a local church, and it was through the faithful preaching of the gospel that all these different pennies started dropping from all these different interactions with faithful Christians, from Sunday school teachers and RE teachers to people like my friend in Horsham. We don't know what effect we'll have. Uh, we are simply called to be faithful and proclaim the gospel. And we can do this because we are empowered by God's spirit, even though it may not feel like it at times. But it's not about me and my feelings. It's all about Christ.